Welcome back to Cancer Perspective. Thank you for joining us. We are continuing April's Awareness Month with head and neck cancer, esophageal cancer awareness, and also testicular cancer awareness. Today, we brought back our guest, Gina Rich, registered dietitian, to be an expert in the topics that we've discussed about head and neck and esophageal. For those of you who have listened to Gina Rich before on a previous podcast we had related to colorectal cancers and poop, you will remember that Gina Rich is the award winner of the Emerging Dietetic Leader of the Year for 2023 for the Illinois Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics. She is awesome, and if you haven't yet listened to her, please check out her episode. Thank you for returning again, Gina. Thank you, Sarah, for having me. I am, as always, excited to be here and be with you, and I am very passionate about today's topic. I thought it fit really well, and I'm very appreciative for your advanced knowledge and nutrition needs for people who are undergoing such drastic changes in their head, neck, esophageal, and gastric areas that are so important to nutrition. Last month's episode with colorectal, we talked about the lower gut, and now we're going to talk about the upper parts. Head and neck and esophageal cancers obviously are directly correlated with nutrition, and preferably I wish all cancer patients had access to a dietitian, but specifically these patients are filtered more to a dietitian because when you think about it, the head, neck, and esophagus, those are all parts of where food takes place and where it begins, you know, in our mouth, where we chew, swallow, so nutrition can be directly impacted. It's very important for these types of patients to be referred to and have continued access to a dietitian throughout this course in their journey. This is so important. Once a person has a cancer related to head and neck, esophageal, it might not seem important that a nasal cavity cancer be related to nutrition. It does seem more clear that somebody with esophageal cancer is related to nutrition, but that whole upper sinuses and passage and the treatment that you must undergo for some of these cancers will definitely impact your ability to swallow, to taste, to smell, and all of that impacts your nutrition, not just at the time of diagnosis, but after treatment and for quite a long time during recovery, and maybe for some people even permanently if we're talking about things such as a feeding tube. The signs leading up to the diagnosis of cancer almost always are going to mean that your nutrition is already impacted, such as having the GERD symptoms that we talked about for esophageal cancers, or having a loss of smell, or having a very, very sore throat if you have tonsillar cancer and not getting the nutrition in. When do you see the patients first, Gina? So there's the time of when I see them and when sometimes I would prefer to see them. Sometimes I'll see the patients optimally right after diagnosis. It's definitely provider dependent. 
I'm glad you're listening to this podcast because I want you to advocate for yourself if you are affected with this type of cancer or know someone who is. You want access to a dietitian right away once you've been diagnosed. It can make or break sometimes how your body's responding to treatment. But I will often see these types of patients as I consider them more high risk for nutrition issues. I'll see them really early in the stages of developing their treatment plan, deciding on chemotherapy, radiation therapy, surgery, etc. So I will see them, but these patients I definitely follow much more closely. Once a week follow-ups, essentially during what we call active treatment, which is, you know, when you're currently getting treated. And then I follow them for even up to a year, sometimes after post-treatment because of how prolonged issues can come about. Because nutrition plays a huge role in repair and recovery. Absolutely. Sometimes, or quite often, your patients, when you do see them, they are coming to you with a nutrition deficit because of their signs and symptoms that they had. Yeah, and I'm glad you pointed that out, that they're already coming at a nutrition deficit standpoint. It's really vital to work closely on your nutrition to build your body up as soon as you figure out that you've been diagnosed because we want your body to be in the best shape because this treatment can be very difficult on the body. And a lot of my patients don't even realize that these types of cancers, the way they function in the body, they actually burn calories and break down protein at a much faster rate. So they need more calories, not less. Yes, exactly, Sarah. What if somebody's coming to you and says, but I needed to lose the weight? 90% of people do end up saying that. I often tell them and give them this spiel, and this is one reason why I love Sarah so much is because she gets it and she also educates her patients on this. Maybe you think that you needed to lose that extra 10 or 15 pounds and you're like, eh, I could do without it. But essentially, what we don't realize what's happening is that the body changes what it prefers and where it goes and attacks, and your body is preferring your muscle So it's breaking down your muscle and eating that mostly. And so you get left with a larger percentage of fat in your body, which is ultimately just going to create more inflammation. You're breaking down muscle. So you've lost muscle. You're weaker. Your immune system is not as responsive. And so it's the wrong kind of weight loss that you want. There is a big, big importance of maintaining Now, with some cancers and some surgeries, is weight loss, you know, appropriate or present? Yeah, and we'll definitely get into that when Sarah and I discuss other types of cancers. But right now for these types of cancers, no weight loss. If I can get a patient to gain weight before starting treatment, I feel so much better about their nutrition status. Absolutely. The type of muscle loss with fat gain is called sarcopenic obesity. 
Now, I'm pretty sure Sarah knows a lot about that, right? Wouldn't you say? Well, I did do a thesis on it, but talking about it today is important because healthcare providers have to be aware of that type of weight loss is the worst kind of weight loss. And we need to keep our patients functional and that will make the sarcopenic obesity or the muscle loss and the fat gain will make our patients more frail and recover from their surgeries that they're probably going to need will take a little bit longer. And if you are a healthcare listener, I do hope that kind of sticks with you because I often run into and have met various healthcare professionals over the years or heard from patients that their providers like, you're getting radiation and oh yeah, well, it's okay. You lost 20 pounds. You were obese to begin with. So I'm not too worried about it. Don't settle for that. Advocate for yourself and be aware of your body and the changes that's happening to your body. So one of the first things you do is usually a calculation of what are their caloric needs. Is that correct? That is absolutely correct. A dietitian is specialized in having the ability to calculate an estimated, you know, calorie, protein, fluid needs. We know from studies, it's validated what I utilize to create these calculations. But yeah, so one of the first things I do will calculate that out and also have that discussion with the patient of the intensity that the body is burning through. I remember one time Sarah and I had this discussion, I don't know if you remember, about how we tell the patients how fast they're burning calories and we use the same kind of analogy. So I don't know, do you remember that? I tell them they're running a marathon on the inside. Absolutely. That is literally the same analogy I've been using for years. I thought that was really awesome and interesting too. The easiest way to think about it is right now I tell patients Even if you're not moving a muscle, you're sleeping and laying in bed all day. On the inside, your body is burning calories and using more protein like someone that's on a treadmill running a marathon like an athlete. So you have much higher needs for both calories and protein right now. And that may be why you have some temperature changes when you're undergoing not just cancer treatment or undergoing the diagnosis process. You have temperature changes because your body's under some stress on the inside. You have some extreme fatigue that you can't figure out, but that doesn't mean you get to stay in bed underneath the covers the whole time. You have to come out and play. 100% because if I feed you a ton of extra protein, your body won't use it to build muscle unless you're moving your muscle. You can rest, but you're not allowed to only rest. rest. Yes. Yeah. See, we think alike. So take us through your initial assessment when you do first meet your patient. Your initial assessment typically will be a lot of questions and info gathering, but these are vital and very important for the dietitian and for your specific nutrition plan as of now. And the nutrition plan will ebb and flow. It's not a... It's not constant. Yes, it changes and we have to adapt to what's happening to your body and how your body's responding. Basically, when I meet with a patient and their caregiver or family or whomever, 
I go through a lot of questions of, you know, I get their baseline body weight because that is very important for the dietitian. We want to know what were you prior to diagnosis, prior to any weight fluctuations? What was a typical standard body weight for you recently? You know, I don't need to know one 10 years ago or whatever, but recently before any changes, what was your norm? And that way I can kind of figure out, well, this is what you are now. And that's a 50 pound loss right now. Okay, your body is burning things much more on the rapid end. So I utilize that into my calculations. But then I kind of visualize it in my assessments. I go head to toe. I always address appetite first. Do you have one? Do you even feel hungry? Are you craving food? Are you still getting those little grumbles in your belly? And then I like to go into the mouth, which has a lot of things we could talk about. Like taste and saliva or poor taste in the mouth. A hundred percent. And I would say those are pretty common things we both hear from our patients. I kind of ask, you know, are you noticing any changes in your taste? And a lot of people often don't think that they will get taste change before treatment starts, actually, too. But you're having chemical changes already from the cancer. Exactly. It's kind of one of those light bulb moments for them, like, oh, that makes sense. That's why my coffee, I haven't been enjoying it lately. Something I loved my whole life all of a sudden just tastes off. Bitter, salty, sweet, metallic, cardboard, garbage. I usually tell the patient it's something on your taste buds could be on the low end and something else be jumping up and taking over. I don't know if I'm saying it correctly. 100%. Yep. This could taste really bad. And that so it's like a hyper sensitivity, like things could taste too sweet. And then things you're going to need to add tons of salt to to even pick that up. You're exactly right on that. I kind of address that and affirm, yeah, what's happening and what you're thinking is crazy. That's normal and to be expected. It's also normal for your appetite to have changes as well. But then I assess their mouth, depending on the type of cancer. Do we have an inflammation? Is something swollen with the tongue cancer? How functionable is it? Can you chew your food? Then I talk about it's always important to let your dietitian know as well if you have dentures or partials, do they fit okay, right? That's important for chewing. It's extremely important and something that we don't always assess correctly. And then again, just like the appetite and your needs can ebb and flow, so can the denture fit in your mouth when you're undergoing the process of diagnosis and treatment for your head and neck cancer. Yeah, and if you lose weight, a lot of people don't realize, too, that then your dentures and stuff may not fit as well as before. I wasn't thinking that. I've not thought about weight loss as a denture thing. Mm -hmm. So, see, I learn things from you still. Yes, that is something, you know, I kind of assess for. I always ask if they're fitting okay and let them know if we lose weight, they may become loose. So be mindful of that. And then I kind of go through... Think about like you take a bite of food. Okay, we tossed it around in our mouth. We addressed the mouth area. Now let's go down and swallow the food. So I ask, have you noticed any changes? Do you notice, are you coughing things back up? You have to spit things out. Do you always have to take a sip of something to push it down through? 
what foods have you been avoiding lately? So I can get an idea of texture-wise where we're at on a spectrum. Can you do breads but not crackers? Can you do steak but not chicken? Texture is an issue and also saliva. And we have all these mucous membranes, right, Sarah? That's right. That are moistening things. One of the biggest things I tell patients is things may ball up and feel like they're getting bigger and tighter. Do you notice a pressure in your esophagus too? As we move lower, as we swallow, if perchance it's more of an esophageal type cancer, there's a certain list of things I ask that also are kind of light bulb moments for patients. I go through and I ask, okay, have you been hiccuping more lately? Do you notice more belching? Do you notice that you get full much more quicker? Is it like a few bites and you're just stuffed? Do you notice that you're having more reflux or that heartburn type issue? Or you notice when you swallow and eat, things are just sitting there and they're not moving through. Those are definitely some important aspects so I can figure out in my head where that tumor is affecting that ability for us to swallow and push food into the belly as well. Matt, we talked a lot about the importance of the pushing and the pulling that goes on on the inside that we don't ever have to think about. One big thing I think is the most difficult is if a tumor is affecting that pushing and pulling ability where it's blocking that little opening or flap from your esophagus to your belly, if it's blocking that or creating an opening in that, there can be a big nutritional deficit happening. I like to give my esophageal patients that have a tumor there, I give them this visual. If you make a fist with your hand and imagine a straw going up out of that fist on the top and in between the straw and the top of your fist is a little flap that when you swallow it opens and allows things to go through into your hand, right? That's what the esophagus has an opening at the end and it goes into your belly. Well, if a tumor is just sitting right there blocking it, things may go down and have to come right back up. That's a big issue. Or if the tumor has that opening kind of kinked open a little bit, you have an air dispersion going into your belly. You have lots of air building up. So that's causing a lot of hiccups. That's causing a lot of belching. And then that's causing a lot of your belly being filled with air. Maybe you took two bites and now you're just done. You physically can't put any more in your belly. So if that's happening, we're eating less, but our caloric needs are extremely high. What can be done? What can be done is a great question. There are so many ways a dietitian can be beneficial, and we have so many tips and tricks up our sleeve of making this more calorie-dense or more filled with extra calories making this texture filled with calories and protein and modifying this. There's a lot of tips and tricks that you're going to learn today walking away that you never thought you could alter food that way or that that in my cupboard would be beneficial. We have lots we can go over, Sarah. All right, let's start there. But I'm also wanting to make sure that when you've been under the process of undergoing a diagnosis, 
This is all brand new to you. And you have to think about things you've never had to think about. When nutrition wasn't really something that you thought about, but eating is often a source of enjoyment. And now we're giving you some tips and tricks because it's become work. It's become essential that you can't ignore it, but you're not really enjoying it because you know if you eat, you're going to belch, you're going to burp. You're going to have poor taste. You're going to have things that were your favorites that aren't anymore. They're going to tell you to take supplements that you don't feel you can swallow. I just want to make sure that people understand that we know this. We know that it's not just about telling you what to do. It's about we know this is hard work and it's not enjoyable. And when food is not enjoyable for the moment, it becomes even harder. And you actually have to give your mind some tricks and tips as well to do that. And one of my favorites is if you're not doing anything else, you are taking a shot glass full of booster insure down in it like a shot because you can't stand to look at a bottle or a full glass of a nutritional shake and say, "Ugh, I have to do this again, or I have to do eight of these in a day. I don't even want to look at it. When it comes to that, or if it does come to that, that's when I tell patients, you are trying to get over this mind block. So little shot glasses, taking your pills with a shot glass of nutrition and just treating it like a have to, not, oh, it's nutrition. I can wait on this. Yeah. And I think that's something, you know, as a dietitian can be hard for me to have to have that discussion with the patient and their family. This is now essential and can't be ignored. This is not, well, let's make this, you know, if you like it, do it. If not, that's okay. That's what I'm trying to say. Yeah. It's a part of their treatment plan, right? It's essentially like their medication. And sometimes like your medication, you have to do things at a certain time. Eating by the clock is a great strategy to know. Yes, I empathize and I get that during this set of time and for some time after treatment, Food, drinking, it may not be enjoyable, but you have to do it or there will be some serious health consequences that can happen to your body and you will regret not putting more focus and energy on nutrition. Yeah, you're treating the cancer because there's a chance to get over this part. You may have some long-term consequences, but the purpose of going through this is to get to a better quality of life in the end. If nutrition is not coming along with us, then you will have a harder time getting to the point that we're hoping we can get you to. Yes, exactly. Nutrition has to be considered a part of your treatment regimen, something you have to do daily, even though you may not want to. Some people, they tell me, listen, I just force myself. I know I need to. I know it's going to make me feel better. So I just do it, right? No one wants to go swallow a pill. No one wants to go get radiation, but you do it because you know it's going to help you with your cancer, so you have to treat nutrition the same. We talk a lot about terminology in some of our episodes, and sometimes providers use the term anorexia or no appetite doesn't mean that you are a 80-pound female that looks like a skeleton. What does it mean, Gina? Yeah, so that's a good point, Sarah. Anorexia is basically a medical term that means the loss of appetite. 
that is not meaning that you have what we call anorexia nervosa, which is a disorder, right, that we're often correlate with very frail people who may rid themselves of food or quote unquote starve themselves. That's a whole psychological disorder. This just basically means that you have the loss of appetite. It does not mean that we are categorizing you as someone with an eating disorder. It's just a medical term that we use in our charts and diagnoses codes. So when you see that on a chart, don't freak out. When we see that on the chart and we send them to the registered dietitian, what are some of your tips and tricks? Tips and tricks for a decreased or complete loss of appetite. Simple one eat by the clock. And what that basically means is it's good to eat every few hours, right? So some people I tell, set a reminder on your cell phone and have it go off, you know, every three hours, food time or protein shake time or snack time. Sometimes that means if you have someone in the house with you, a caregiver, a loved one, an adult child or someone That means what I call having some nagging love. A lot of times patients come to me and say, oh my gosh, my wife just won't get off my back about eating. And actually, it's probably a good thing that they're aware of that. And you need those reminders from our loved ones because with a loss of appetite, you can go all day and not want to eat. Besides eating by the clock, eating just smaller portions, right? Again, that's the mind thing. Yeah. Your brain sees a full plate of food and you know that you cannot eat a full plate of food. It's going to say, nope, I'm not even going to pick up the fork because, oh my goodness, it's going to make me gag. Yes, exactly. Using a smaller plate, right? Something simple like that. A lot of people use their side dishes. I tell people, okay, it's been two hours. Just go in the fridge and take three spoonfuls of cottage cheese and walk away, right? I like to also not use the word meals. A lot of times doctors may tell you, well, eat smaller meals, right? Meals to me can seem overwhelming sometimes. We think the standard three meal a day. So we're thinking large meals with multiple different foods in front of us. I use mini meals is what I like to call them. Do five to six mini meals a day. And that can consist of literally just a cup of yogurt. That can consist of just a protein shake. That can consist of some chicken salad and crackers, right? Something small, but frequent. Frequent is the key for success with a loss of appetite or decreased appetite. Also, another thing is with loss of appetite, kind of like how Sarah just explained that whole scenario, you go in the kitchen, you sit down and you say, nope, I'm not going to eat. A lot of patients come to me and say, then what? You have to have a plan B. Sometimes it's much easier to drink your nutrition than to sit down, pick up the fork, put it to our mouth, chew it, break it up, swallow it, take a sip of water. That can be extremely exhausting for patients. Sometimes with head and neck patients, they get chewing fatigue. They get so tired from eating, the actual physical act of eating can make them tired. So drinking your nutrition and figuring out what is the best drink to use. 
that is something that we'll definitely touch base on later, optimizing the liquid nutrition part. One thing when I'm dealing with a loss of appetite is I'm often working with the provider and we're working through the patient's case. Oftentimes, Sarah and I would get to work together on a patient because there may be some medical-based treatments. Absolutely. There are some oral treatments, maybe a pill that might be helpful to help with appetite. There is also medical marijuana for the places that that is allowed. Not all states have medical marijuana. And again, that's also something that helps some people and not others. When I tell people that have the option of medical marijuana, I'm specifically telling them to talk to their dispensary specialist. What exactly are they looking for? A formula for appetite is significantly different than a formula for anxiety. Absolutely. And I say the same exact thing. Just like Sarah mentioned, there's medications and then medical marijuana. With medications, not all patients are candidates for medications because of other medical conditions that they may have. And they don't work for everyone. It's not a one pill fix all type scenario. And actually, the research really is more in favor of better outcomes and results with the use of medical marijuana in regards to inducing your appetite. I often mention that in a consult. I, as a dietitian, do not prescribe it. So don't ask your dietitian for a prescription for it. The dietitian can be a resource for you to have a discussion about medical marijuana. And just like Sarah mentioned, you want to go to a dispensary and be exactly specific saying, this is what I'm here for. I'm a cancer patient. I'm experiencing a loss of appetite. I'm experiencing other issues that's making it difficult for me to eat. Marijuana has become a science now. There's certain different types that will help with sleep, neuropathy, pain, and appetite. And there's also different forms, right, Sarah? Right. In my practice, I do not condone inhaling anything because eventually it may lead to other damage. But oral therapies, there's also synthesized medical marijuana that can be prescribed by just about any provider in the oncology world. That's one of those drugs that it either works or it doesn't. And I found more people that it doesn't work so well. So we don't use it very often where I am at. Yeah. So the research is kind of showing us having a little bit of that THC in the medical marijuana is what really is going to help with appetite. Now, I often bring this up in a console and maybe I'm working with this really sweet, adorable 75 year old woman and she goes, oh my gosh, you're trying to get me high? Like, what? You know, she goes, well, I don't want to be all, you know, experiencing some hallucinogenic effects or anything like that. And that's a super valid concern to have because maybe you just aren't versed on this, right? It's totally different nowadays. I explained to them that no, you won't experience that cliche effect you may see in movies, that goofiness type effect. Will it maybe make you a little bit more sleepy? Yes, 
but there's certain ones that really you'll notice an induced appetite without the hallucinogenic cliche effects that we're often thinking in our heads when we think of marijuana. Excellent. And the other thing with medical marijuana for appetite is you also want to ask your dispensary if they have a nurse on staff that helps patients with diagnosis find the right type and right form and right dose as well. Very important information. You bring up a good point, Gina. You should find a dispensary that has appropriate resources for patients that have medical needs in our case, cancer needs. You should find a formula that is appropriate for them. And like I said, I do not recommend inhalation of anything just because of where I work (laughs) means that we don't know what's going to irritate our lungs in the future. So instead, maybe tinctures that you drop under the tongue, oils, transdermal, rubs, bath bombs, Yeah, and with the edibles, the very important thing that your dietitian, your provider, your care team will reiterate is that you only need a tiny amount and you need to have that discussion with a licensed professional at the dispensary. How much do I take? When do I take it? You may only need a third of a gummy bear. Right. Instead of eating a whole bag of gummy bears, you just need a third. So these are very potent forms. It's a medical use. It takes a discussion. Now, these aren't like super regulated and such. And when you do have a gummy bear, you don't know the exact amount that's going to be in each thing. But these are something that I have found that have been the most beneficial when it comes to help stimulating appetite other than, you know, exercise and things like that. If we're talking exercise, we need to have some movement to continue your nutrition needs. You need to get the nutrition to the cells and that takes movement. Absolutely. If you don't move, your body kind of goes into sleep mode. When you move your body, your body will move your gut and your gut will help move all these signals and pathways to help that appetite be more present. Also have to make sure that we are not over exercising. Yes, fine line, right? And so that's another discussion you can have with your healthcare provider is what is an acceptable amount of physical activity? What should I be doing? What should I be avoiding? Right, absolutely. Some activities always better than no activity. Yep. Too much activity might put you down where you are going to be in bed and you're not going to eat. And then we just defeated our whole talk. Yeah. And you're right. We need to move a lot. Some patients of mine, when I explain to them how much calories that these types of cancers tend to burn, a lot of them are then fearful to do any physical activity because they don't want to burn more calories and then lose weight more. No, you actually will benefit from a little bit of physical activity. Even if your diagnosis and treatment is making you burn calories faster, you're not going to put your body at a disadvantage. When you are having some physical activity, you're using and moving things to the right spots in the body to help build up strength. You're repairing your cells and you're maintaining your muscle 
Yes. Not allowing your body to break your muscle down. Yes. You are preventing your body from basically breaking and eating away its own muscle. Excellent. So what about dysgeusia? One of my favorite words, dysgeusia, which ask your doctor to say it because a lot of doctors actually may not even know what that term is. It is so funny, but it means altered taste. And then agusia means no taste. Yep, exactly, Sarah. You could have a wacky taste or you could have absolutely no taste at all. This topic is important and can be utilized for all cancer patients because this is an extremely common side effect and it can actually even begin before they get treatment, Sarah, right? That is correct. All those chemical changes that we talk about. Yes. And then on top of that, we're treating you with maybe some certain chemotherapies. And the way chemos work is they attack cells that quickly and rapidly turn over. That is why our taste buds get attacked first is because those cells rapidly turn over. That's also why some certain drugs make patients have their hair loss, right? Because there's certain things in our body. So altered taste. Sarah, what would you say are like some of the common things your patients kind of complain of like taste-wise? There is just a very common problem. They'll say that they went to go get their favorite food and it didn't taste right. Or just noticing that, yeah, I'm not drinking coffee anymore because I don't enjoy it. Also, some things could be cardboard. That's usually related to the saliva though, right? It can be. Yes, absolutely. That's more the saliva issue. Also, the patient sometimes is like, well, it's just unexplainable. And I'll be like, does it just taste ugh? And I use that exact sound and the patient's like, yep, nailed it. That is exactly what I feel like or seem to be tasting. Appetite, taste, they can all kind of correlate and affect one another because they're so intertwined. Our sense of smell can become disrupted as well. And those three things just really work off one another. The sense of smell is important to taste. And that's why it does get affected. If you've ever had a really bad cold, you've had a stuffy nose, you've had a sore throat, this is what we're talking about. You go to have your chicken noodle soup and it doesn't taste like the real chicken noodle soup that you remember or something like that. It can be because you're not smelling. It can be because you've got this thick, nasty snot that's gone down the back of your throat. All of these things are supposed to happen when your body's trying to fix itself and trying to heal. It makes sense that this would happen during the process of cancer and healing and all of the other things that we add to that whole process. We frequently have patients that say, yeah, now I'm not putting anything in my mouth. It doesn't taste right and I'm not going to do it. Just recently had somebody say, I give up. The worst case over my seven years was a patient ended up just stopped eating throughout treatment and was hospitalized with severe malnutrition and needed a feeding tube because they just did not like the taste and wouldn't do it. So to avoid that, right, to not be that patient and have to go to that extreme, there are some things we can do. 
Is there anything we can do to fix that taste change and make it back to their normal taste? Unfortunately, there's not. And if there was, I feel like I would be the richest person in the world because it is such a common thing among all of our cancer patients. But it is manageable. Yes. So there are things we can do. I am saying, yes, we can help manage this. There's certain simple things that you just wouldn't think of. And that's okay. That's why you have a healthcare team. That's why we're here to help give you these ideas. It may not come from a dietitian. A lot of our healthcare professionals in oncology are well aware of this issue and may offer you some awesome advice. Bring it up to your nurse, bring it up to your APM, bring it up to your doctor. They have all seen it and there are certain things we can help do to make it a little better and easier for you to eat and drink. When you say it's manageable and these tips and tricks that you can have, are you talking about things like lemon drops? Yep, you got it. Lemon drops is actually one of my favorite things and it can help. Sometimes if you have a kind of loss of taste, you can't taste anything or things just taste a little off. Sometimes lemon drops or citrus flavors, the key with that is the citrus in it. It's more tart. It's more vibrant on your taste buds. It wakes them right up and you can actually taste those things and they're more appealing to you. Oftentimes, a lot of people will be like, yeah, water tastes terrible which is bad because we want you to stay hydrated. But they notice, yeah, I've been enjoying lemonade more or I've been adding lemon to my water. And I don't know, it's just helping me drink more water. It's helping me not hate water. That's because your taste buds are on the more citrus preferable side. So sucking on a lemon drop or some hard citrus mints or something like that would be beneficial. I always encourage getting the sugar-free ones, not because of restricting the calories, but because of something in it. There's a sugar alcohol called xylitol, and that actually helps stimulate your salivary glands, or it helps to kind of help create some more saliva, which is good for a lot of those patients that also have dry mouth or dry mouth can be very common with a lot of the medications you're on. So it's a double whammy in my book. Besides lemon and lemonade and the citrusy things, I've had some strange comments from different patients. I had a patient who swore by root beer drops, that he would suck on a root beer drop prior to eating, just got his saliva going and his taste going. So whatever works. I've also told people maybe they can use a baking soda and saltwater gargle to kind of neutralize the yuck mouth that they might be tasting. Yeah, exactly. I tell patients that's like a baseline thing I tell all head and neck and esophageal patients is create a bottle like in a quart of something, a solution that you can refresh every few days of water, baking soda and salt. That helps just kind of neutralize that taste buds. It's often recommended before and after you eat, but at least do it before just to get a fresh neutral taste going in your mouth. One thing also with citrus is that you can marinate your meats in citrus juice, which we often don't think of doing. 
You can marinate a pork tenderloin in some pineapple juice or add some orange juice and soy sauce to your chicken or something like that. That can help make things taste and become more appealing because with taste change, you can be sometimes have a meat aversion as well. Other tips, Sarah, that I've heard of is that if you get a metallic taste, don't use metal silverware. What's happening is your body is much more sensitive. It's like a hypersensitivity that you're picking up that metallic taste from items. So if you're putting a metal fork in your mouth with a spoonful of mashed potatoes, that spoonful of mashed potatoes may taste like just pure metal or aluminum. So using plastic silverware. A lot of the nurses tell our patients that right off the get-go. That's an old one, just like the lemon. That's one that we use a lot. And that has a lot to do with chemotherapy. Certain metal-based chemotherapies are particularly at fault there. So, Gina, I just learned about this miracle berry. What can you tell me about it? Is it science? There is definitely some very good ongoing science behind it. If you've ever been like watching the news or something and they did a segment and someone like let this capsule or tablet melt on their mouth and then they bit into a lemon and it tasted sweet. There's this berry out there that actually can alter our taste buds for a short period of time. It's not like a pill where you take it once a day. You can get it in a freeze-dried form. There's capsules and supplement stores now that sell this berry. It is literally called the Miracle Berry, or if you look up Miracle Berry Taste Change. I read a study on it where they did it in a cancer clinic and had these patients take this tablet based from the Miracle Berry and did it before they ate, and the patients... If they weren't eating, they started to eat. And if they were eating, they ate more. Wow. This is all brand new to me. So I, you know, being a healthcare professional was like, well, let me try it. Right. And so I did. And I'm telling you, I probably ate like four lemons in one sitting and just. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) And then I stopped because I was like, well, my poor teeth. But yeah, so it made it taste like a sweet lemonade. So it's altering what you're experiencing in hopes that you would thus want to eat more or be more appealed to eat. So if it works for you, do it. If it doesn't work, move on, try something new. Perfect. That's everything that I say as well. Today, this may taste good. Mm -hmm. And tomorrow, it may taste terrible. Right. So it's a frustrating thing that comes about. It's it's extremely frustrating. It can be frustrating for your caregiver as well, because you may say, man, I really want to taste this today. And finally, that caregiver can do something for you, something that counts. And yes, I'm so excited that you finally want to eat something. Okay, or I'm going to go and I'm going to pick up this certain special meal that you ask for. I come back and what happens? Yep, then the patient says, no, thank you. That tastes terrible. If it were me and I was a caregiver, that may hurt your feelings as well. But just realize 
there is a scientific reason. There is something hormonally, physically, cellularly happening to the patient's body. It's not them just being a sassy spouse or being mean towards your food and what you are preparing. There is something going on that's making it difficult and things just may taste terrible. And they don't want to be in that position either. I tell the patient and the caregiver in those instances that anything that is said in the heat of frustration and sadness and illness cannot be held against you in a court of law. Amen. Yes, exactly. Taste is definitely something that can be difficult. With taste, just make sure you're letting your dietitian know what kind of taste you're experiencing. And the dietitian can alter foods and recommendations based on what you're experiencing during that certain set of time. Just like I mentioned how water may taste bad, we want to prevent that dehydration. So let's find something that tastes good and that is acceptable for you to drink. Excellent. When I am dealing with somebody who's really struggling with taste changes, I tell them here, I have a bunch of samples from my registered dietitian. Try these. You may find one that you like right now. If you find one that you're not liking, put it in the refrigerator and wait until next time and try it again. Just don't give up. Just keep putting something in your mouth to get in whatever nutrition you are able. Yeah, exactly. That's right. You just want to keep trying and circle back because a couple of days later, things may be different and taste different. Put in the effort, right? You want to fight this. Put in that effort knowing that nutrition will directly impact your treatment and how effective it can be to your body. Excellent. 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 We're talking a lot about the mouth and how that is so important in this, the taste, the smell, the movement treatment, such as radiation that may affect those saliva glands, even shutting the saliva glands out. It really can alter your dental health, your oral health, your ability to eat, and again, brings in the course of nutrition and how we have to help manage that. What about the saliva? Can you tell us, Gina? Yeah, so saliva can actually impact a person and their nutrition status because it can deter you from wanting to eat or drink or eating certain textures and avoiding certain foods. I often get patients that come to me and tell me they have such a dry mouth that they can't swallow their chicken or their sandwiches anymore. They are avoiding their favorite foods, but not replacing things. So for a dry mouth, a lot of times I tell my patients to continue that oral baking soda salt solution we talked about with taste. That will help with dry mouth. Side note, if you do have any sores in your mouth or a recent dental procedure done, take the salt out if it burns or just reduce it and then bring it back in. But for a dry mouth, there are certain things that we can do. Obviously, alter the types of foods you're choosing. For example, if you eat a piece of grilled chicken breast, that is a pretty drier cut of meat if you do like a skinless, boneless. 
when you eat it, that chicken breast is soaking up whatever saliva is left in your mouth and balling up. And sometimes it balls up in their mouth and they have to spit it back out, essentially. Or it hurts to swallow for our esophageal patients. Sometimes it could be a choking hazard, essentially. What do I do if that's the only meat the patient wants to eat and they just love chicken? Well, make it tender, make it soft, add sauces, crockpot chicken, right? Just altering the way we're cooking and preparing food items. For a dry mouth, choose more tender cuts of meat, make things softer, and add lots of sauces and gravies, which also will add extra calories and sometimes protein as well. So that's a win-win Other things are like crackers and things we want to avoid or dip it in things where it'll kind of loosen and moisten up in your mouth as you're swallowing it. Those are just some types of ways to make sure you're still eating with a dry mouth. Now, with a dry mouth, a lot of times people don't even realize there's a whole section in your local grocery store. There's all sorts of things they make for dry mouth these days, and some of them were developed because of the work that they did with head and neck cancers and the loss of saliva. So they helped produce some really great resources, mouthwashes, toothpastes, dissolvable tabs, and there's even gels. Next time you go to the grocery store or your local pharmacy, go down the mouth care aisle and just take like two extra minutes and you'll find that dry mouth section. If we're not looking for it, we never notice it. One thing too with dry mouth is you want to avoid anything with alcohol in it. There's actually alcohol-free mouth rinse, Listerine or Crest. They do make these options. These are available. These are simple switches. It may not solve the problem, but it will improve it and allow you to manage this side effect, which can help bring back more pleasure when eating. What about the thick ropey saliva? Ooh, that ooey gooey thing. Yes. So that is pretty common. And actually, a lot of my patients think it's because they have too much saliva. But if you had too much saliva, it'd be much thinner. This is what we call thick saliva. So thick saliva and dry mouth kind of go hand in hand with each other. But thick saliva is basically your saliva glands just aren't producing as much. So everything gets clumped up and smushed together. Sometimes patients tell me, gosh, it's like strings I'm pulling out of my mouth, which seems really odd and weird. But it is an extremely common side effect, especially for our patients undergoing radiation to the head neck area. Typically, a lot of these more severe side effects will come about towards the end of the second week, beginning of third week of radiation. You'll really start to get full effect and these things will start to appear and can become bothersome. If you were to eat, but yet you have all this gooey saliva going on in your mouth, it tastes bad and it's very unappealing for patients and makes things difficult to push to the back of their throat and have that swallow function. Things I tell people is go take a really hot shower. That steam can help loosen it up. The oral rinses can help 
putting a fresh piece of pineapple and rolling around in your mouth. Pineapple has a certain enzyme in it called bromelain. And papaya has pion, I think is how you pronounce it. And those enzymes break up that saliva as well. Excellent. Excellent. Because that is often the most distressing side effect of radiation when the saliva glands are damaged. And some of these patients may need more thorough discussion if they're radiation patients where their saliva glands are gone forever. They may need artificial saliva. There are more certain medication things you can always discuss with your healthcare provider. One thing I've had some amazing success with, it was actually introduced to me by a patient that saw this famous ENT specialist because the patient had head and neck cancer and got chemo and radiation and he had very limited function from his saliva glands. It was making eating meat impossible. You know, a guy that loved to grill. The patient brought to me that he was on this medication and all of a sudden he gained 10 pounds and he's eating steaks. He's eating grilled chicken. And I'm like, well, what is this? He actually started taking pilocarpine. Pilocarpine is a cholinergic agonist. It is an agonist, not an antagonist, right? So we're working with your system that produces saliva and tears. So if you have dry eyes or dry mouth, this may be a newer class of drugs that can be used. There's a lot of research now where it actually is indicated for use with our head and neck populations that have undergone radiation therapy. So it is another tool in our toolbox that we can have a discussion with. Excellent, excellent. And of course, there's going to be so many other products on the market now. There's Medical Lubricity. On Amazon, I'm sure there's a kajillion products. But some of them all have the same idea behind them. Some of them may work. Some of them may just be false advertising. Before you buy and try, bring it to attention of your provider and they can maybe look into it and assess if this is the right product for you because this is going to be a different type of dry mouth than our dry mouth that the general population sometimes may experience for various reasons. Excellent. We think this is a good stopping point as we break and separate the rest of our conversation into its own episode. We'll talk about enteral feedings or bypassing the mouth and stomach. We'll talk about the pros of feeding tubes. Gina helps us bust myths and dispel fears. We learn more about liquid nutrition, and all of this information can be helpful for just about anybody in the cancer realm. I hope you join us on part two of this conversation. Thank you for joining us. Take care and spread kindness. Kindness.